You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our blue planet, the blue ocean. I'm ready to dive into another year of ocean content and bringing it to you through Ocean Currents on the radio today and all year long. Today, we are talking about the case of the disappearing kelp on the Sonoma coast. More specifically, we're talking about bull kelp, the kelp with that big bulbous air bladder on it. And I'm going to be bringing in some experts in just a few minutes to talk more about this. So stay with us here on Ocean Currents to learn more about kelp. is an ecological and cultural fabric of this region. And when I think of walking the beaches, I think about the drift kelp. And when I think about heading offshore on the ocean, I think about the bull kelp rafts that we see drifting offshore, providing many temporary ecosystems. And when I think about the Sonoma Coast, I think about abalone, bull kelp, and rockfish. But things have changed drastically along our coast since 2012, bull kelp forests in the Marin-Sonoma region have been almost completely decimated. And my guests today have been engaged in learning about the problem and formulating plans to conserve and restore to the best of our management abilities this vital ecosystem to the coast and ocean. My guests today are Rietta Homan of the Greater Farallons Marine Sanctuary Association she is the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary Kelp Recovery Working Group Coordinator and a longtime excellent marine educator for the sanctuary. And we also have Cynthia Catan, an environmental scientist with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife's Marine Region. Based in the Bodega Bay Field Office at the UC Davis Bodega Marine Laboratory, her main responsibilities are in marine invertebrate fisheries and conservation research. So I want to welcome both our guests to KWMR, and thank you for calling in today. You're both live on the air. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Do I have both Rietta and Cynthia on? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Great. Well, welcome, both of you. So, Rietta, let's start with you. You're a diver, a scientist, and an educator. And for those of us, the listeners that may not be that familiar, can you describe to us what the bull kelp ecosystem is all about, what it looks like, what it should look like, its ecological range, how it reproduces, and what animals live in it? Yeah, definitely. Rietta, I think I lost you there. I'm not sure. Cynthia, why don't you go ahead and answer that question, and maybe Rietta will call right back in. Oh, certainly. Yeah. So the bull kelp forest is a major ecosystem off our near shore coast in Northern California, all the way up into Alaska. Um, so it has a really wide range, uh, geographic range. It is, um, I think, equivalent to, uh, you know, a redwood forest in terms of it. it's really important for creating habitat for a lot of different critters and um, and really affects the um, the overall environment in the, in the area, 
Um, so it, it creates a, um, you know, a lot of hiding places for, uh, for fish and it, it has, it offers food for, for a lot of organisms like abalone and urchins. Um, and it, uh, you know, it shades a lot of the, the understory and, um, and is really important for, uh, helping with some of the the environmental conditions in terms of like the chemistry of the ocean uh, and then in the local area potentially as well as uh, wave action. And what is the range for bull kelp? Is it throughout the entire state of California? So a lot of people might be more familiar with Southern California kelp forest ecosystems, which are dominated by a giant kelp, which is much, um, it's the same height, <laughs> of of the bull kelp, but it has a lot more foliage. Um, so and uh, so each individual giant kelp has lots of stalks that come up, um, and and blades that come all the way up. Um, bull kelp has one stalk, and it goes it shoots all the way up to the surface. It's really fast growing. It needs to get to the light as fast as it can um, because all of its blades are up at the surface. Where it's it's gathering a lot of the, that sunshine that helps it grow and produce. Bull kelp is uh, is more is dominating uh, north of San Francisco. There's an there's a area of our coast that um, has a combination of giant kelp and bull kelp, and that's from uh, Point Conception to San Francisco. Uh, generally, we can see a mixture of those of those two species. And how about reproduction? How do bull kelp reproduce? Since they are not a, a flowering plant, how do bull kelp reproduce? Yeah, so kelp, um, kelp produces spores. Uh, it actually has a really interesting life history. Um, it has multiple phases of its life history. It can get kind of complicated, but the the stage that we are most familiar with, which is really this tall, um, incredible, you know, habitat out there, um, each individual creates spores. And you can see um, usually in the uh, late summer, fall time period, if you look at the blades, you'll see a, a thick, dark patch, a series of thick, dark patches um, showing up along in the blades, and that's where the spores are being created. And bull kelp will just release that patch of spores, and it will go floating off, releasing those spores. How far can spores travel in terms of uh, propagation, and um, like how many do they pr- release when they are propagating? That's a very good question, and not one we have a good answer to yet. It must be pretty hard to study spores in the ocean, right? They're microscopic. They're really, really tiny and um, and very difficult to find in the wild. Uh, we do know um, a bit about their their growth and and uh, you know progress in from laboratory studies uh, where we have more control over you know we know that we put spores there so we can look there. <laughs> we can find them. We know what species they are. But since space spores are so tiny, gathering them from the wild, it's, you have to grow them up before you can tell what they are. Um, 
so yeah, it's difficult to study. And um, but I think it's a that's a really critically important question right now about how far can those forests travel. One of the main concerns we have right now is um, how spore limited are we in our on our coast right now um, to promote growth um, of the bull kelp, and I, I I think we'll get there further along in our discussion. Yeah, and I've been reading up a bit. There's been quite a few studies globally where kelp exists too. So interesting to to kind of compare notes of species and, and different regions, ecoregions. Well, Rietta's having a tough time calling in. Um, I'd sent her the number to call in, so I know she'll get back in at some point, so I'll keep going with you. No problem. Um, I just want to make one more point. Yeah. Um, that's really an important difference that sets bull kelp apart from, um, from the other species that we're familiar with, such as giant kelp. Um, giant kelp is a perennial, and bull kelp is an annual. So, um, so perennials are are um, plants that can uh, die back to the base and then grow back from that base the next year. So they just continue on um, through just individual growth, and not they're not just reliant on that spore production to create or to persist the population going forward. Bull kelp is more a bit like corn, very fast growing, mm-hmm. um, but it um, it relies on that spore production. Each individual will die back or get ripped out of the um, off the reef each winter um, for, from the storms, and that's a natural part of of that cycle. Um, but they can't grow back from the base, even if it's left there. Uh, they have to grow back from the spores. That must be an issue for repopulation and concern in terms of bringing back kelp if the conditions are right. Right. In terms of monitoring, how has the state monitored kelp in California? I mean, is it just visual surveys by diving or um, what type of surveys do we know just so we know the coverage of kelp? I've seen some maps that show this incredibly dramatic, drastic reduction from 2008 to 2016. And how, how do you monitor kelp? I mean, it's a huge state, huge ecosystem, and it's such an important ecosystem in its breadth. And I'd uh, love to hear more about that. Yeah. So those maps that you've seen and, and maybe some of your listeners have seen are, are showing the amount of kelp that um, has reached the surface it's a it's a nice proxy um, for kind of the health of of the ecosystem to be able to look at what's what's growing at the surface. It would be like taking um, taking aerial images of like the redwood forest and and just seeing the canopy um, and not the understory. Um, so it's important to know that what we're what we're surveying with that is just what's reaching the surface. There's a lot going on underneath that that we also want to know what's going on with that. Um, but it's a, like I said, it's a nice, um, it's a nice opportunity for us to see things on a large scale. And that those surveys were done um, with an airplane and um, and and georeferenced images that were 
combined into into a large map. And uh, and we have multiple years of those data, and so we can see um, how do the most recent years compare with what we uh, what we've seen in the past. And um, but like I said, that doesn't give us the full story. It just gives us this large overview, and and it is um, also challenging um, because airplanes are expensive, um, and also you have to um, fly them at the right time of year, um, at the right time of day when the tides are um, are low, um, and um, and you need to have no cloud cover. <laughs> and no glare um, off the water. So it, it, it's challenging. Um, so we're looking into other ways that we can, we can um, approach getting the same data, maybe using satellite imagery, maybe using um, drone technology for at least smaller um, areas. But again, that's giving us just the, the uppermost layer of information and to get that information about what's happening under the water, we need to go under the water. So, um, so we have Cal Fish and Wildlife has a, a long term uh, for almost, I guess, this year would make it 20 years. <laughs> we're in 2019, so we're in 20 years of, of data coming up on uh, North Coast bull kelp forest ecosystems where we are counting. Um, organisms under under the water, um, tracking the the habitat, not just the the large kelp. Um, we also have a number of other uh, subtitle monitoring programs in California. Uh, one is Reef Check, which is the uh, citizen science version of what of what we've been doing, um, where people recreational divers can get involved and collect data. Um, and also the PISCO, which is a group that's based out of Santa Cruz, they have done a bit of monitoring on the North Coast. They mostly have been focusing subtitly in the Central Coast and, and Southern California. I have Rietta back on the line. So, Rietta, I want to join you to the conversation here. Welcome. You're live on KWMR. Excellent. Thank you. Sorry <laughs> for the drop call earlier. No worries. It's technology. Rietta, just to catch you up, I've been talking with Cynthia, and she's talked a bit about the kelp ecosystem and how we study and monitor kelp on the Sonoma Coast. And as we talked about earlier in the program, there's been this drastic reduction in kelp that I'm hoping you both can talk to a bit here about what does this mean and what are we doing? So, Rietta, um, how about we come back to you now and talk a little bit about what declines have we seen and what are some of the potential causes of decline that are causing this drastic loss? Over the past decade, there have been a number of different stressors on the ecosystem that have compounded. And these include warm water events. We had a multi-year persistent marine heat wave. We had a disease come through that affected more than 20 species of our sea stars, and they're a primary predator of urchins. So we saw a subsequent increase in urchin populations. There was a harmful algal bloom that impacted especially the Sonoma coastline back in 2011. And all of these things together have sort of formed uh, what actually 
the Fish and Wildlife team has dubbed a perfect storm of stressors that have come together to really have a heavy impact on the ecosystem and cause uh, such a dramatic decline. How has this affected the communities on the North Coast in terms of communities, in terms of um, economy, fisheries, recreation? I'm sure there's been a strong impact from this algae loss that has happened. Cynthia, why don't you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, so the the kelp is, like I said, the kind of the core, the foundation of the ecosystem that we rely on heavily for our fisheries, for recreation, for, and I would, I would say for inspiration, you know, it, it is just this amazing system to visit. And, and the loss of that has really affected the entire ecosystem to the point where we are not seeing really any algal growth, you know, not just the, the tall bull kelp, but all the understory kelp and other algal species as well. It's created created massive starvation conditions for those herbivores that rely on the kelp, including abalone and urchins, which are major fisheries on our coast that create opportunities for tourism and you know, are some major economic drivers for these small small communities on the on these remote on this remote coast. So it's been it's been a, a really dramatic impact really quickly. In 2014 was the first year that we saw this rapid loss of bull kelp, and it's been progressively affecting the ecosystem more and more over the last four or five years. So first started to see the impact to actually the red urchin fishery. It's a commercial fishery on the North Coast that has been one of the top five fisheries in the state of California for the last like 20 years. And this this last set of years seen dramatic declines in the in the fishery productivity. You know, in terms of those urchins, those red urchins that are trying to feed on the the kelp to grow their the uni that we eat, that's they're not getting enough kelp to produce any uni in many cases. So even though there's a lot of urchins out there, they don't have any food value. We can't harvest them for food. The red urchin is the larger of the two species and is historically the target of a commercial fishery that's a major commercial fishery for our coast. And we also, the purple urchins are, because they're smaller, there's a small, a shorter window of opportunity for those, for those species to, that species to be targeted by the commercial fishery where they're producing enough uni to be of sufficient food value to market. So, so the major historical focus on the fishery has been the red urchin. Neither of those species are doing poorly in terms of numbers. They're, they're, we've seen substantial increases in both species of urchin in terms of numbers, but neither of them are producing sufficient uni to support the commercial fishery. And the, that commercial fishery submitted a request for federal disaster relief funds a couple of years ago, which they they were denied, my, is my hmm. understanding. Wow. 
that continues to be a severe impact to our coastal communities. But that, I, I would say that was sort of the canary in the coal mine of, of impact. That the red urchin fishery was the first to be impacted because it has such a direct um, reliance on kelp as a food source to create the product, the uni production. We saw a similar um, issue in terms of the abalone fishery. The uh, major recreational fishery, long, multiple decades of of running. Um, this really robust red abalone fishery. It's one of the, the last remaining robust recreational fisheries in the world. And um, so it was a really big deal when when we recommended to the Fish and Game Commission that that fishery be closed last year. That was really devastating. And we we had to make that recommendation because we saw mass mortality in the fishery of those of those abalone because of long-term starvation conditions that continue today and we are you know the last few weeks we've had some really big storms washing big waves up and we've been getting reports all up and down the north coast about abalone dead and dying washing up on shore because they're just too weak Aww. to hold on to the the rocks. Those poor, poor snails. <laughs> yes. It's so sad. <laughs> it's really, um, <clears throat> it really is just really devastating. Like I said, we've been going out and doing our subtitle surveys. And in 2015 was the first year when we saw, you know, 2014, we lost the bull kelp, but we hadn't lost the understory yet. In 2015, was the first year I think we started to see this, this really dramatic transition from a kelp forest ecosystem to what we call an urchin barren condition, where where we're not seeing any, or we're we're seeing an overabundance of purple urchins, extreme grazing pressure on on all the algal species, and since then we've been seeing that that per, progress even further so that we see that the urchins, the purple urchins that are the most abundant, are actually munching through not just the, the fleshy algae that sometimes like we like to eat, you know, like the, the seaweed that is on our, our sushi rolls or something, um, or in seaweed salad. But they're also eating through the, the crust. There's a pink crust on, that covers most of the rocks that is an alga, but it is a calcified alga, really hard to eat. It's like photosynthetic rock. You know, it's not good food. Right. They're eating through them. <clears throat> That's the coralline algae, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, and we are seeing, you know, eighty percent of our of our survey area bare rock now. And that, so that's that's a a signal that this is beyond a. At what we consider a typical urchin barren condition, which is kind of bad enough, but <laughs> this is this is progressed beyond that, so that it's really affecting even that foundational crust on the, on the reef. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm gonna interrupt you right there. Sure. Um, this is KWMR Point Ray Station, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And we're talking today about the kelp situation on the Marin Sonoma Coast 
with Cynthia Catan from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and Rietta Homan of the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. And I actually want to move now a bit to the work that you've both been doing because responding to this big disaster with these cascading effects of the ecosystem changing and the impact to the commercial fishery as well as the recreational fishery and the communities that rely on that tourism. The Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary, which is the federal marine protected area that runs all the way up to Point Arena, along with the California Fish and Wildlife, I understand, had a working group put together to address this issue. And Rietta, you were the coordinator of this group. Can you give us a little background on how the group came together and who made up this group and, and what the goals of this group were? Because it's really one of our best efforts to address the situation instead of just monitoring it. Now there's this group of people really working to decide how to put the science together to move forward and and doing something about it. Just to clarify a little bit, I'm actually the science lead for the um, kelp recovery working group, whereas uh, Sarah Hutto is our um, kelp recovery working group coordinator. She's a, the head of our climate program. Thank you for clarifying. So the working group, we have been volunteering with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, since 2011 and experienced the decline of the kelp forest sort of firsthand. And it seemed the first couple of years when we really experienced this dramatic loss that it wasn't really much of a recognized issue at first. And so at the time, it seemed really prudent to see if we could pull people together and figure out a process for solutions and to analyze the data to determine what could be done. And so I worked really closely with Cynthia. Last year, we were working on putting together a larger scale working group, actually, that would encompass the West Coast. But then the sanctuary provided a lot of support through the Sanctuary Advisory Council. And so in January, um, I presented the formation of the working group and potential partners to the Sanctuary Advisory Council. And we really tried to look at who could be uh, representatives on the working group that had specific expertise or particular data sets or were members of the community um, with relevant insight or experience. And so we really brought together this diverse group, an interdisciplinary team, to look at the state of the science and what has been done so far. And it was co-chaired, of course, uh, by our Sanctuary Advisory Council representative, uh, Francesco Cope and uh, Cynthia. And we looked at, again, the state of the science, um, looking at kelp loss in the region and identifying what data and knowledge gaps there were. We invited guest speakers from other regions to discuss their restoration strategies and methods and what recovery actions had been taken in, for example, Southern California, the Puget Sound, so other regions that could have potential applications for this region. And we looked at what efforts have been done to monitor kelp canopy and subtidal ecosystems. And we looked specifically for kelp canopy. We looked at aerial mapping, remote sensing, and satellite imagery. And then we dug into criteria that could be used in selecting restoration sites along the Sonoma and Mendocino coastline. So all of this was done within the past year. So as I mentioned, I presented in January. Uh, we formed the working group, invited members, and then we held three meetings, in-person meetings throughout the year where we discussed all these different aspects. And the working group members 
put together a set of recommendations for the sanctuary and for Fish and Wildlife to review moving forward. And those recommendations will be incorporated into a bull kelp recovery plan that will be implemented by both agencies. Fantastic. What are the working group recommendations? Or can you speak broadly to them at this point, since they're not released beyond the Sanctuary Advisory Council at this point? So the recommendations, we're actually going to be posting them on our website in the next couple of weeks. So folks can go to farallons.org backslash kelp and see all of our meeting notes and our members and presentations that were given and the actual recommendations themselves. So the recommendations are under review right now, so they're not finalized. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The overarching recommendation was to establish, in partnership with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, a kelp recovery program within the sanctuary that would work to implement the recommendations or strategies that were developed by the working group. And a huge part of that is developing a network. So we really want to capitalize on this awesome partnership that we formed with these different groups and members of the community and establish a really strong network of partners. And this has already been established to a certain extent, so Cynthia can speak to the Kelper group (laughs) a bit. But really, the, the primary recommendations were to establish this program and have a coordinator that would implement recommendations involving monitoring and research, community and engagement, and the site selection process for restoration. I understand there have been some efforts to attempt to locally or in specific areas remove this excess of purple urchins. These That may be preventing the opportunity for bull kelp to grow. And it's been a way that recreational divers and the communities have been able to be engaged in this a bit. And So I just want to jump back and ask about that. Cynthia, can you talk about that a little bit in terms of these uh, urchin derbies and what's the efficacy in those? Are they helpful? Are they something that could ecologically help the bull kelp ecosystem? Yeah, I think that's a great question. We are, I think, going back to Rietta's point about, you know, the the kelper partnership, I think that the the working group that we formed – um, and the recommendations that we've come up with as a as a group are really building off the experiences that the Kelper Partnership has has had in the last year or two. So, you know, I kind of stepping back a bit. We I started to talk with the commercial urchin divers uh, back in 2016 when they first started to have severe impact to their their fishery to you know talk with them about what I've been seeing with the with the on the science side of things what they've been seeing on in terms of you know what are the the impacts that they've been seeing not just to the habitat but also to their industry and talk about how we can work together one of the the lessons learned from a lot of other situations that are similar to this, where we have lots of purple urchins and an urchin barren condition, is that if we can reduce that grazing pressure, we can support kelp recovery. That's, that, I think, is, is an important piece that is not... We can't make the assumption that the urchins are the only thing that is hindering the kelp recovery, and we can't assume that if we take the urchins out that the thing that will come back is the kelp. But that is that is a that is one of the strongest issues right now is that there is high levels of, of grazing pressure. So 
part of what we're doing is is doing the research, is learning about this system. How does this system respond? Because as I said, this is a different system than than we've seen urchin barrens come come up in the past. This is not a giant kelp forest in Southern California. This is a um, an annual species in Northern California. We need to to make sure that that what we're doing is actually going in the right direction. But we also want to, we can use this information to let us know if there is anything else that's hindering recovery locally. It sounds like there is a little bit of monitoring associated with uh, urchin removal along with these derbies to see if there's anything that can be gained from it. Absolutely. The entire point is to do the research that we need to inform our next steps. That's great. So, you know, the, the work that we've been doing, it started out with a collaboration with the commercial urchin divers. It has expanded tremendously to include recreational divers, nonprofits, industry in aquaculture and in land management and composting. And, you know, it's there are so many people who who are affected by this issue and who have really great ideas about how to move forward with problem solving. It's really brought the community together very strongly. And I think that it's a really ideal model for how we can all work together to help kind of mitigate some of this issue, these impacts of of climate change for our communities. It's, I agree 100%. It's great to hear all these folks coming together, different aspects of the community, and bringing all the science together and engagement and sharing and making this plan moving forward. Rietta, can you talk a little bit about the Kelpert Partnership that is one of these outcomes for moving forward to help recover the kelp? Well, the uh, Kelp Recovery Network will build off of the Kelper Partnership. So I think the specifics of that, the actual Kelper group, Cynthia can speak in detail about. But the network that we're really hoping to put together will be built off of the Kelper Partnership and our working group process. So I see it as a way of implementing or really streamlining both and bringing in the folks who participated in the working group, which a large portion of them are also a part of the Kelper Partnership. But there were some that maybe haven't been involved up to this point, but we want to bring them in and build off of that really strong partnership that we really have been working to establish over, that Cynthia especially has been working to establish over the last few years, but then incorporating our working group process this year and moving forward with really how can we address the recommendations that will be reviewed and eventually adopted by the sanctuary and fish and wildlife and how we can build upon all of these partnerships that have come together. So it's all been very exciting to see all these different folks involved. And I think that moving forward, it will be really beneficial to bring everyone together and form this really strong network where we can share data and opportunities and focus on the bigger picture of the kelp forest ecosystem and what we can do to facilitate recovery. Great. So a lot of this is involving scientists and people that are really engaged in monitoring in the ocean or recreational or commercial harvesting. 
What do you think is really important for community members that are not necessarily in the ocean or are doing science themselves, but the larger public? What are different ways they might be able to be involved to help facilitate some of these ideas for the recovery program? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is to stay informed, (laughs) Uh, to keep in touch, to see what has come from the working group or what has come from the partnership in the future. And we're hoping to really provide a centralized area where we can let people know about opportunities for citizen science. And there have already been, you know, there are already citizen science programs such as Reef Check on the Northern California coastline. And there's Cynthia works at the Nature Conservancy to put together a citizen kelp uh, program where beachgoers can go and actually log whether or not they see kelp at the surface or on the beach. And so knowing what opportunities are available for citizen science, but in general staying informed as to what progress has been made and the state of the ecosystem and what efforts are being performed. And of course, the urchin removals are a really awesome opportunity for anyone who likes to get into the water (laughs) and actually actively be a part of the solution. So I think definitely there's a lot of opportunity moving forward to stay involved and stay informed. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Well, you need to wrap it up here in just a minute. And I just wanted to give both of you another opportunity to just say any last words and also to make sure you share again any websites where people can learn about the working group's efforts and science that they brought together. Rayada, you mentioned farallons.org backslash kelp. But um, any other websites that might be of use and any last words that either of you want to share about this kelp recovery effort? Yeah, I think another really great resource is the website for the Help the Kelp campaign run by one of our major kelper partners. It's the NIO Center for Marine Science in Fort Bragg. They have an excellent website which talks about the issue but also has opportunities for people to go and see what, how they can get involved in lots of different ways and not just um, underwater. One of the next urchin harvest events, the recreational urchin harvest events that is being planned was, is planned for January 12th and 13th up at Van Dam State Park, which is a nice place to do that in January since it's a fairly protected cove. So I think that they, they'll be able to get in the water pretty well there regardless of the weather. I will be up there with my team and, and the Noyo Science Center folks will be there. A lot of the Kelper partners will be there supporting the, the Waterman's Alliance, who is coordinating this recreational harvest event. And, and we'll be doing a bunch of sampling of the urchins that are brought to the shore so that we're seeing, we're going to be looking, cracking some open, seeing what kind of reproductive condition they're at, you know, how much uni are they producing, what are they eating. So you don't have to be going underwater to To be involved, if you want to come and and hang out and uh, see what the inside of an urchin looks like, you're welcome to come up and join us. And I, I just to add to what Rietta was saying before, stay informed, but also inform. There's a lot of people who still don't really have not heard about this issue, and I think it's a it's a really critically important issue to be aware of for our coast. And so please do share this information with with your friends and family. Great. That's wonderful. Rietta, anything else you'd like to add? No, I think we've 
covered all of the relevant bases. I do want to say that our Sanctuary Advisory Council is at the end of February. I think it's on February 27th. I mean, it is open to the public. So if anyone wants to come see us present on the final bulk health recovery plan, they can, you know, they're certainly more than welcome to do so. And then the, the plan will be available to the public after that. Great. That's awesome. And do you know where this February 27th Advisory Council meeting will be? I don't off the top of my head, but we do have a website for our Sanctuary Advisory Council that folks can go on to, uh, and they'll be posted on there. So our, I think once it's determined, if it hasn't been yet, then uh, folks can, can go on there and see where it will be held. I think that's farallons.noaa.gov. And Well, great. I just want to say thank you to both of you. I think that this whole story is such an incredible lesson about ocean literacy and their interconnectedness of ocean ecosystems and communities and economies and fisheries and culture as well. And also a really great example of stewardship of agencies working together collaboratively with the communities and bringing in all the stakeholders and people together. So thank you for sharing all of this work and for doing all this work this past year. I'll definitely be keeping posted and sharing news with this audience here in Point Reyes and beyond. So thank you so much and have a great new year. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Just been talking with Cynthia Catan from the California Fish and Wildlife, and Rietta Homan from the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary Association. And we've been talking about the state of the kelp on the Sonoma Coast, which has been in a drastic decline, and some really wonderful actions from these agencies working together with the communities up in the North Coast to put together this kelp recovery plant program to bring as many people together to help address this issue. So we're going to take a quick, quick break. As you may hear, I have another guest in the studio here, and he's prepared some ocean jokes today. Since we don't have our Positively Ocean episode today, we have some jokes to bring to you. So we'll be back in just a moment to bring in Owen to talk about some jokes. in yet. So I have a very special young guest in the studio with me. I have Owen Kenyon, my son, my little marine, my little marine mammal. And Owen has prepared some ocean jokes to share with you. And we just have a couple minutes, Owen, so I don't know if we'll have time to go through all of them. But are you ready? Yes. Okay. Let's go ahead. Pick out a joke. Um, what kind of car does an oyster drive? I don't know. A clamborghini. <laughs> a clamborghini. All right. What kind of sharks make good carpenters? Hmm. I don't know. Hammerheads. Hammerheads, like a hammer. Got it. What's black and white and red all over? Black and white and red all over a checkerboard. With red checkers on it? No. Answer, an orca with a sunburn. (laughs) I hope that doesn't happen too often. Where do killer whales go to the dentist? Where do they go to the dentist? I didn't know they went to the dentist. 
The orthodontist. Oh, like to get braces, the orthodontist. I got it. There were some good fish ones on there, too. You got a good fish one? Why are fish so smart? Oh, well, they're smarter than humans. They -hmm. must do something right. No? What's the answer? Um, they spend lots of time in schools. Ooh, schools. All right. How about one more? What do sea monsters like to eat? No idea. Fish and chips. Ships. <laughs> Fish and ships. <laughs> that, I think, is my favorite one. A little play on the word fish and chips. Well, I have to ask you, or um, thank you for sharing those jokes, but can I ask you another question? Yes. What do you like most about the ocean? Mm, the fish. The fish. And what do you like about fish? Do you like looking at them? or? Yes, I like looking at them. And don't you also like to do other things with fish? Fishing. Trying fishing, yeah. Um. What is your favorite ocean animal? Hmm, that's hard. <laughs> you don't have to have a favorite. Maybe just one of your, maybe your one all of your favorites. All of them. All of them. Awesome. If you is, is there anything important you'd like to share with people about how to take care of the ocean? Is there anything people can do every day to help take care of the ocean? Um, no littering or. Um, not buying lots of plastic. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. You must have a very, um, does your mom make you pick up trash sometimes? Yeah, he's nodding Sometimes I do it on my, by myself. I know, and I'm really proud of you for doing that. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming into the studio today, and it's back to school tomorrow, right? Yeah. All right, you have one more announcement, but I'm going to let you know when to read that. We're not quite there yet, Okay. Thanks for sharing those jokes and your information. And I want to say thank you to the listeners today for tuning in and listening about our kelp situation. We will be hopefully back next month. Let's hope this this federal shutdown ends soon. Um, Next month, we'll also have a Positively Ocean episode to bring back with Liz Fox, our producer. Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month at 11 o'clock to 12. And... Normally, you can hear past episodes of this show through the podcast in iTunes or on the cordellbank.noaa.gov website. Right now, during the government shutdown, that's all shut down. But when it opens, it'll all be right back up. And we'll make sure to add any new episodes that have been lingering. And uh, to hear the past 11 years of shows of Ocean Currents. And in the last few months, I've gotten a couple emails from listeners that have been listening to the podcast. And I just want to say thank you. I love hearing from listeners. If you have ideas for topics or questions or comments, please email me at cordellbank at noah.gov. And I will definitely get back to you. And oh, and I think you have one last thing to add here. Go for it. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean bay or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin KWMR. Fantastic. Thank you, Owen, for joining me today in the studio, and thanks to everybody for listening on KWMR.
for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thank you.